invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, this is our, our last Sunday in the book of James. Um, in a couple of weeks, we'll, beginning, we'll begin a study on the life of David or the gospel through the life of David. And one of the things I encourage you to do is um, out on the tables out back, there's actually a card uh, that just, a little, a little promotional card, I guess, about that series, um, and really I'd love for you to use it just as an excuse to invite your neighbor and to talk with them and to get to know them, um, and so feel free to take those and to hand those out. James 5, chapter or verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that in this moment we would hear from you, that you would honor the very reading of your word, that even now it would begin working its way into our heart and our minds. Drop our defenses. Lord, may your word go forth like a hammer shattering a rock. And so God, in this moment, at this time, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain. And may they change us. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Um, one of the privileges of my profession is I get to do a lot of weddings. Um, I've done a lot of your weddings. Um, I love it because, I mean, I've got the best seat in the house. I'm right there, and I get to see uh, these two people become one. And if I've done your wedding, you might remember me talking to the bridesmaids and to the groomsmen the night before. I typically pull them all aside, and and I I say, I just want to talk about a couple of things with you. Um, Know that you weren't picked to be a bridesmaid or a groomsman just because you look really good in a dress or you're going to look really good in a tux. Um, That might be part of the reason, but that's not the main reason. The main reason is that you're called to be special witnesses to what's about to take place tomorrow. You are to witness the vows that this couple is going to make, and it is up to you to hold them to these vows for life. And so that means, groomsmen, if you hear that the groom is doing something stupid... Uh, and he, he's thinking about leaving or something like that, you go, you find him, and you say, I'm not going to let it happen. All right? I'm not going to let it happen. Bridesmaids, you do the same thing. They have you next to them up on stage so that you will hold them to their vows. And I've seen that work. I have seen couples who have been in trouble, and I've seen groomsmen fly from wherever they were to go and to intervene and say, hey, I'm not letting you do it. I'm not, I'm not letting you leave this woman. And I've seen it happen. And I've also seen groomsmen fail and not do that. Years back, a word reached Lauren, um, that's my wife, Lauren and I, that a dear friend of ours was possibly having an affair. Uh, This was hard news for us to believe because um, I knew this woman. I knew her really well. I actually married this couple together, and I had a hard time believing uh, that she would have an affair. Well, as word reached us about this, I, uh, 
once we got over the shock, I tried to gather the facts. And, and so I just asked a couple of people real quick. I was like, do, do, have, have you heard anything? And uh, they're like, oh, we've been talking about, yeah, we, we've talked about this for months. Yeah, we, we really think that this stuff is going on. And, and I was shocked that nobody actually talked to them about it. But they were all talking to one another about it. And they were so concerned. But they were concerned behind this couple's back. And so my wife and I, we gathered another couple together. We immediately prayed, um, and we sent my wife to go talk to this lady. And uh, so she called up and said, uh, hey, I'd, I'd like to get together with you. And the lady says, well, it's really not the you know, great time business. She goes, no, I need to get together with you now. And it's like, oh, okay. So they met the Chick-fil-A and had possibly the most awkward conversation of my wife's life as she was very direct and she asked those questions. That is what we need to do as believers. To pursue those who've wandered, not talk about them, not feign some concern, but to actually go with the hope and the intent of bringing them back. This is what James is talking about here. He ends his letter with an exhortation to pursue those who've wandered from the truth. Now, we've been studying James for a while, and you just got to love James. I mean, he's consistent to the end. uh, There's no small talk, no little chit-chat. He's not very personable. He kind of just says it as it is. And all the other letters in the New Testament, well, not all of them, many of them, they end with a personal greeting, you know, kiss so-and-so, say hello to so-and-so. Not James. He's just like, hey, pursue those who've wandered. And the the letter just kind of ends. But he knows that Christ came to seek and to save the lost. And if Christ is our King and Christ's Spirit is inside of us, then we will go to seek and to save that which is lost. It will will be in our DNA as a body. Now the phrase here, wandered from the truth, or bringing this person back, can mean a couple of things. It can either mean maybe just a Christian who's come into a pattern of sin, or it can mean somebody who's not a believer at all who has left. Um, The the person who comes to my mind in this in Scripture is Demas. Um, Maybe you've heard of him. He's mentioned just a few times in Scripture. In Colossians 4, we read, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. And so Demas is alongside with Paul here. Then you get uh, Philemon 1.24. It says, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. And so Demas is right next to Luke, I mean, in the position with Paul. And he's a fellow worker with Paul. And then you get to 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And so you have Demas, who was once a strong, active member of the church, actually serving alongside of Paul, and then something happened. He, he wandered from the truth. He came in love with the world, and he left. And you've got to ask, you know, was he ever a Christian? Was he, was he not a Christian? And the reality is we, 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 don't, we, we don't really know at this point. We just know that he's left Paul. But I think the situation is similar to a... Uh, to what was happening uh, in John's church, the Apostle John. And he wrote this in 1 John 2.19. He 
He wrote this when a number of people were leaving the church. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain to everyone that they are not of us. And so John seems to think here that those who have left his church, those who have left the faith, they're not losing their salvation. They never knew the Lord to begin with. Maybe, maybe they, they had come to truth with a lowercase t, and they kind of intellectually understood these things, but they had never met the living truth. They had never met Jesus who had changed their hearts, and so they left. So to bring somebody back who's wandered, uh, it, it could mean talking about somebody who, uh, who's in sin, who's just left and you're bringing them back, or it could be somebody who doesn't know the Lord at all. It doesn't really matter. Because our job as believers is to find those who are acting like they're lost and to bring them in. And that's what James urges us to do. Now last week, when we looked at healing, James gave some very specific instructions concerning healing. He, he said that if there's somebody who is too sick to make it to church, they're lying in bed, the elders should go to them, pray over them, raise them up, restore them. But here he doesn't say, elders, I've got a job for you. Professional ministers, I've got a job for you. This is for the whole church. Look at verse 19. He says, my brothers. And by the way, if ever in Scripture it says my brothers, you can add sisters just like in English. Sometimes we say he and it's both. It's the same thing here. It's my brothers and my sisters. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. My brothers and my sisters. This is a task for every person in this room, not just for the professionals. So don't just call me up and say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm bringing somebody who doesn't know the Lord tonight to church. Can you be sure to talk with them? I'd be, like, I'd be happy to, but you know what? You should as well. James ends this letter here with two exhortations to the church that the church as a whole are supposed to do. If you remember last week, he, he, he says we're to confess our sins to one another and we're to pray for one another that we might be healed. And this is what everybody here is supposed to be doing, confessing and praying for one another. We don't go to a professional priest to confess and to pray. We go to one another to confess and to pray. As a matter of fact, that is what the priesthood of believers means. When Martin Luther talked about the priesthood of believers, he wasn't talking about uh, teaching or preaching. What he was saying is now we as a body, we can confess our sins to one another. Now we can pray for one another that we would be healed and we would be restored. We don't have to go to a professional anymore. All of us are priests. And it's the same thing here for sharing our faith. You don't have to bring in a professional. This is your calling. It's a responsibility of every person in this room to be relentless, relentless in bringing people back to the faith. Jesus gave a parable 
to teach the importance of this. I have it in your worship guide. In Luke 15, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, we've heard this story many a times. You know, we've seen the paintings, you know, with Jesus, you know, with the lamb over, over his shoulders walking. But we kind of forget how radical this story was in its day. Um, I, I work out at the Jewish Community Center, which is uh, just over the mountain by Trinity Hospital. Um, I've been a member there for, I don't know, a little over 10 years. I work out just about every day. And a few years ago, I decided to, to position my locker next to a really old Jewish man who I'd kind of gotten to know, um, who was in the beginning stages of dementia. And so for the last Four years, I've had the same conversation almost every single day with this man. I thought it would be a way that I could just kind of show kindness to him and, and hope also that if I just kept at it, maybe, maybe some of the gospel will sink in. But, but every day, it's, it's the same thing. It's, uh, he does remember my name. He does remember I'm a pastor. Uh, and he always asks, do you have family? I'm like, Yes, I've got three girls. And he goes, three girls! You know, my, my son has three girls. I always kid him that, you know, he lives in a sorority house. That's great. Do your kids do the most funny things? Because mine say the most funny things. And so we, this is every day, all right? We have this conversation. And I, I try to steer it in different directions. I try uh, to, to interject different things. But, but it's always going to revolve around these same things. Two days ago was different. It started off the same way, and then he, he just he kind of went on a tangent. He goes, you know, my Gentile friend, <laughs> we, it's another one of the jokes that I, I get to say every day. He goes, you know, I love Gentiles too, and I say, well, I am circumcised, you know, and then we, uh, you know, he laughs, and I get to say it every day. Um, <laughs> But he says, you know, we have, we have a lot of Gentiles here at the Jewish Community Center, and, and I love them all. And he goes, you know, one of my Gentile friends was telling me the other day, he's like, you know, I've been a member here for 20 years, and not one person has ever tried to proselytize me. And he said, you know, isn't that great about our faith, the Jewish faith? It's like that, that we don't feel like we have to tell others about what we believe. You know, if they want to come to God that's fine. We're not going to try to hold them out. He goes, but, but we're not going to be actively out telling them what they need to believe. And he thought that was the most wonderful thing. That's a mindset that was very present in Jesus' day. 
that there was not, there was not the need to go out and to try to evangelize people, to try to, to share the people. No, you, you, you're born a Jew, and, 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 if, and if God wanted you to come in, he would bring you in. And then Jesus gives this parable. And he says, that's, no. God, God is reaching and God is pursuing us and we are to go after those who are lost. Jesus is always sharing his faith. I mean, they notice that about him. He's always eating and he's always sitting and, and with all these sinners, the people that nobody really wants to talk to. You know, you're kind of kind when you pass, but you don't really want to have them in your home. Jesus is always eating with them. And then Jesus explains why he does this when he asks the question, which one of you, having a hundred sheep, if he, has not, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine and go until he finds it? Now, honestly, I have no idea if that's a rhetorical question or not. Because Jesus is addressing scribes and Pharisees, and he says, which one of you, when you lose one of your hundred sheep, they're not shepherds? I, I mean, I don't know. If this is rhetorical or not, if they would have been thinking, well, absolutely we'd leave 99 and go after the one. A lot of them might have think, well, 99% is a pretty good ratio. We would just sit right here. But Jesus is saying, this isn't what the good shepherd does. A good shepherd is going to pursue the one who's lost. This isn't an easy, this isn't a comfortable task. I mean, the good shepherd, you know, he comes back and he, he puts the flock out in pasture and he's counting, I'm sure. He's like, 99. There's the temptation just to say, well, I, I'm sure I missed one because they all do look alike. And you're like, well, ah, no, he counts again. No, it's just 99. All right, one is really lost. Do, do I just, I mean, it's just one. Do I just sit here? Do I just relax? I've already worked really hard. Can't I just enjoy the fruits of my labor? 99% is pretty good. But the good shepherd says, no, he's going to go. Once again, he's going to go and he's going to travel. It's going to be tired, dirty work. Sheep don't get lost in the open. It's probably, you know, in a ravine, in a ditch somewhere. And so he's going to go to the low, the dirty places to look around for the sheep. And then when he finds the sheep, the sheep obviously doesn't want to come. He's like, you know, here sheep, here sheep. Doesn't follow his voice. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and you know, they follow me. This sheep isn't, because he has to grab the sheep, bind it, and put it over his shoulders. And, you know, do, do you know how hard it is taking a, a sheep through the wilderness who doesn't want to be held back home? I have no idea, actually. But I'm imagining it's pretty hard. It's not easy work. Listen to me, this is what... Jesus Christ has done for every one of us. He was in a very comfortable place. A place of a lot of luxury, a lot of wealth. He had everything he needed or wanted. But then he noticed somebody's missing. And so he leaves his heavenly throne and he comes to us. He comes to us. He gets his hands dirty. He eats with us. Spends time with us. And then He shoulders our burdens. He takes our burdens upon Himself. He takes our sins upon Himself. And He carries us home. To do this with others is Christ-like. It's what He has done for us. And Jesus is telling these Pharisees here, you completely misunderstand God. He's not 
up there passively and stoically just kind of looking at us. He's pursuing us with everything in him. Even at the expense of sending me to come and reach you. And when he finds the lost sheep, let me tell you, there is a party. God is not impassive or passive. He's not stoic. He rejoices. Let me tell you what, if the Spirit of Christ is in us, this is how we will respond to the lost. You'll go to the places you don't want to go, to the dark places, the lonely places. You'll be with the people who really annoy you, who you don't want to spend time with, and you go to them to the people who don't want to hear what you have to say and you will relentlessly pursue them and you'll bring them home. It's a joyful and it's a difficult task. And even as I'm looking around in this room, I can see some people here in which the only reason you are here is because somebody did that for you. They wouldn't let you go. So this is our calling. Don't ever for a moment, hear me here, don't ever for a moment think your calling is, hey, I'm a Christian, now I just get to sit in the pasture, sit in the shade, eat and just get fat and could care less about what happens around me. That is not your calling. And if you believe that is your calling, you will be a joyless Christian. Because the joy that we get, the rejoicing that happens in heaven, what I've heard called the wine of angels is the tears of repentance. That's what makes them merry. That's what makes them cheerful. And it's for us too, when we see people come to know the Lord, we get to be a part of that. James ends his letter in verse 20 by saying this, Let them know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This save his soul from death, we don't know what the his soul, who that's referring to. In Greek, it's ambiguous. And Greek is not dependent on word order like English is. Um, and so the his soul can either mean the wanderer or it can mean the one who went after the wanderer to bring them back. The saving his soul from death can either be the person's soul who is saved is the one who pursued the lost, or it can be the lost who is brought in. Or it could be both, which is what I believe, that James is purposely being ambiguous here, because that his soul means both. And this is a very scriptural thought. You find in Ezekiel 3 when God tells uh, the people says, or Ezekiel, you are to declare to them my word. You're to declare to the people my word. And if you don't, their blood is on your hands. Ezekiel, you will save yourself by declaring this to the people. Paul picks up the very similar theme. He tells, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, he says, guard yourself and your preaching. And if you do so, you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. So in the way that you preach, in the way that you guard yourself, you're saving both yourself and them. And I think the same thought is here. We save both our soul from death and we save theirs. 
And I think we can see this when we look at the story of the prodigal son, which comes right after the story of the lost sheep. You have the lost sheep, then you have the lost coin, and then Jesus tells about the lost sons. And if you remember that story, you have the wanderer, the one who's wandered from the truth and is coming back. And the father sees him you know, and runs to him and embraces him and puts a ring on his finger. And then he lets other people participate in bringing the wandering son back. He tells his servants, go do this. You, know, you go kill the fatted calf. You go make this feast. You go, go do all these things. We all get to participate in the wandering person coming back. The father allows us that joyful privilege. And then there's the elder son. And he says, come on, you get to participate in this too. And the saving of your brother and the bringing him back home. And his brother says, no, absolutely not. I mean, you're going to throw a party for the one who's wandered off? No way. And what we see in that parable is when your heart is reluctant, resistant to bring back the wandering sinner, it shows you don't understand the gospel at all. All this time you've been serving your father out of duty and not out of delight. You don't understand his heart, and his heart has not changed you. And I think this is what James is saying here. It's like, if you understand who God is, if the gospel has changed your heart, this happens. And if it's not, your soul is in peril. It's showing that you really don't understand the grace of Jesus Christ. We are to pursue those who have lost, who are lost. We're going to have a time of prayer right now to pray for those who are lost. Because I would imagine, even as I'm looking around, that there's, for some of you, there is a certain person who's popped in your mind. There's somebody you feel like you really need to talk to, um, to share Jesus with. So we're going to take time to pray before we partake in communion.